our creativity actually flourishes when we're when we have limits. And so whether that's limits of time or if it's just limits of genre or a particular project, I think we actually will find if we choose to like stay within those guardrails that we'll begin to explore all the possibilities that we maybe didn't see before. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Ashley Hales is a writer, a speaker, and a host of the Finding Holy Podcast. Her first book was Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Her new book is A Spacious Life, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits. Jen Pollock-Michelle says that Ashley Hales rescues us from the siren seduction of self-help. Her vision of the spacious life isn't something to chase after, but to receive. Ashley Hales, I'm so happy that you are able to join me today on the Habit Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about your new book, A Spacious Life, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about this title for a minute. Sure. Because you're, you're talking, in, in some ways you're talking about letting go of the uh of the idea that you can sort of have everything and and you know uh, that that your life it's okay for your life to be small and for us to recognize our limits Mm -hmm. and yet you're talking about a life that's spacious right that's like i'm I'm sure you are doing this on purposes Uh, (laughs) this, this little um What's what's the uh, oxymoron? I guess mm-hmm. um, or oxymoron, as mm-hmm. I've heard people say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, why is our life more spacious when we um, when we come to terms with limits? Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I love, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will resonate with, is you know, both in Harry Potter, right in the fourth book, where they're at. Um, I forget where they are actually, but you know, they get the Harry goes into the Weasley's tent and all of a sudden, you know, it looks like a little pup tent and it's actually like a full on house. Right. And you get that a lot too, of course, in in Lewis Mm -hmm. where at the, in the last battle where Lucy says, you know, once the stable held something that was bigger in our world too, Mm -hmm. than the entire world. And, you know, I think there's this paradox of, when we look at limits from one side of the spectrum, it looks like that pup tent. It looks like, you know, that ugly kind of stable that we see um, the God Tash inhabiting in the last battle. Mm -hmm. And yet when we enter into it, it's actually spacious because, you know, limits are part of the created order. Before sin entered the world, we actually, there was limits, right? Creation Mm -hmm. had cycles of being fallow and then flourishing planets had orbits they couldn't just like go wherever they wanted <laughs> and humans too we have limits yeah you uh, a, a recurring image in uh, your book is guardrails mm-hmm. the guard the guard rails of love mm-hmm. um, tell me about that yeah I tell a story in the book about this precarious mountain road that my husband and I and we, had, we two of our children were driving on at one point 
and he had to do about an 18 point turn because we had gotten stuck in some unexpected <laughs> snow and I was pregnant and just trying to hold it all together and not absolutely flip out our two young sons in the backseat. Um, but, you know, realizing that guardrails are usually put there for a purpose. Um, they yeah. are, they are to actually show us how we can drive <laughs> uh-huh. in, in helpful ways um, without guardrails or speed limits or anything like that. We wouldn't be able to function as, as well. Uh-huh. And so I think when we think about God's guardrails, it's helpful to think that these are actually things that hem us in and they give us the place to be productive, to flourish, to be creative. Mm-hmm. I think though, since the garden, most of us fight against those impositions. Um, and so the challenge, I think, in sanctification is also learning to submit ourselves like Jesus does to those limits. Yeah. It takes a lot of our bandwidth. When you when you feel like I'm going to invent my life every day, um, right. That's you end up devoting a lot. I'm so grateful, for instance, that I don't have to think about how to put my socks on every morning. Right. <laughs> or what's your favorite cereal? Like you've created, you've already created those habits of like, this is just what I buy at the grocery store instead of being, having to remake those choices every single time. Yeah. Can you imagine going to the grocery store, going to the gross, the cereal aisle and not having an idea of what, what's up and just saying, oh, this panoply of choices before me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Actually have that exact analogy in uh, the first chapter of my book too, is just really, um, we lived in Scotland, my husband and I for graduate school and everything was small, a little smaller, your your corner shops, right. To go to. And, um, you, the bread and the milk would run out at some point during the week, like in the actual stores, it wasn't like there was Uh so much all the time. We'd come to America again and just being completely overwhelmed with like the amount of condiments, for instance, yeah. <laughs> we don't do well with unlimited choice. And I think we tell ourselves that we, we need unlimited choice to live the good life, but yeah. I don't think that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Alan Noble's book is coming out about the same time right. as your yeah. book. Have, yeah. have you have you seen an advanced copy of that book? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and we've I think had a few so much fun overlap between there what you is. Yeah. It's been really fun to see how our books might create good conversations. Yeah. Um I I, I agree that, that it's that there's the the overlap between your books is is so helpful um, and and again um, in in embracing I don't know, I guess I'm being repetitive now I, I am but in embracing limits um, we now have the energy left over right. to tend to our business yeah um, you know I'm, I'm a, I teach writing a good bit and and I, I talk about, you know, especially when you've got a big idea that you're trying to, you know, a big complex idea, it's all the more important that you make in that sentence, when you don't have any choice, but to use big words, maybe make mm-hmm. sure the grammar is straightforward so that your, mm-hmm. so that your reader's not using their energy to, to sort out the, the grammar. They can use their energy to understand this big right. idea you're trying to get. Across. Yeah, that's great. We are, yeah, we have limited energy, limited mental capacities, and we yeah. want to be we want to be good neighbors in our in our writing. I love that. Yeah, and I think we have the idea that our attention is somehow um, that you know when we when we run out of attention, it's because we're insufficiently disciplined. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's, I mean that's often true, but <laughs> right. also I think there's only a finite amount of attention that you have that you can mm-hmm. that you can give in a day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this is you know. 
super relevant to writers, for instance. Right. Yeah. To think that um, what's wrong with me that I can't, you know, write from (laughs) for eight hours straight. You can't. I mean, you you may be able to build up eight hours straight writing, maybe, but you may not be able to. Right. Because we just have a finite amount of of mental energy and attention. Right. And like, we're not just brains on sticks too. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, so as you were writing this book, um, what did you learn about the, your writing process? I mean, this is a podcast about writing, right? Yeah. Not just about the books that got written, but but how, you know, so tell me about that. How did you embrace limits did anything change about your writing process as you were thinking through this idea of mm, yeah. and guardrails? Yeah, I really like that. Um, you know, well, I, I turned in a copy late because um, of the pandemic and, you know, when the world shut down and we had four children at home that we were trying to work through virtual schooling. <laughs> yeah. There was, I had so you no weren't already homeschooling. You started homeschooling because of the yes, pandemic. Yes, yes. So severe limits on my time yeah. all of a sudden. Um and, you know, so I, I kind of shoved this book out in, in some ways a little bit prematurely. And my editors got back to me and they just said, you know, compared to you know, your first book, um, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, there is a sense in which we want more of you in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I didn't want to put all, all that much of myself in this second book. Um, I just wanted to talk about limits and just kind Mm -hmm. of stay at a distance. And so Mm -hmm. I think realizing the pandemic and just my own lack of attention, as well as my own reader's lack of attention Mm -hmm. and the kind, helpful editors coming alongside me, I realized, okay, we need, we need an invitation to see these things as good, to see our limits as good and not necessarily full of all of the theological arguments that are easy, you know, to trot out and then maintain Mm -hmm. a distance from Mm -hmm. the pain of acknowledging our limits. And so I really had to kind of wrestle through what does it look like to write in a way that um, treats my reader gently um, and kindly and not simply as like, hey, let's sit in the corner together and kind of rip on all of these wrong ideas of freedom or significance that we see in our contemporary Western cultural narratives. Yeah. Do you run into people um, who reject what you're saying? I mean, is, is this, I guess what I'm asking is, is there any real pushback? I mean, I, I know the way people, the way we, I'm saying people people including me, mm-hmm. live is this sort of um, rejecting the idea of finitude. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I, I, know I'm, I know I'm supposed to embrace my own finitude and I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of saying, oh no, Ashley, you're wrong about that. Does, does, have you ever talked about your ideas to people who are like, no, I, you, you're really, you're really wrong about this. We should be, or are you just reminding people of what they kind of know already? I do think it is a, more of a reminder for sure. Um, granted, you know, if I were to be interviewed kind of, at, you know, in these go get them sort of entrepreneurial settings, I'm sure uh-huh. I get a little bit more pushback about, you know, the ways in which we need to pull up our bootstraps and, you know, yeah. keep hustling for our worthiness. You know, in Christian <laughs> context, I think we realize there is a big disconnect, right? We don't see Jesus hustling and hurrying and, yeah. Um, there is an invitation there. I think, though, everything in us, whether we're believers or not, or writers or not, wants to 
fight or to live differently um, yeah. than actually leaning into those limits. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I got to go back to something you said a minute ago. Your editor said they wanted more Ashley in there. Yep. Um, and I'm not sure I fully understood what it looked like for you to bring more Ashley to this mm-hmm. book. Um, you know, they said, too, I was trying to get it really theologically correct. Um, uh-huh. I was trotting out all the theologians and commentators to try to create kind of a web of an argument. Um, I have a PhD, and so that comes naturally to write and think like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what is interesting and it feels like authentic to my writing is to also really bring kind of a warm presence um, and pastoral kind of concern for my reader, as well mm-hmm. as to kind of start out, you know, vulnerably telling stories from my own life. So I am kind mm-hmm. of a fellow traveler along the way. And I didn't really have very many kind of personal narratives throughout um, in that first edition. Yeah. Um, a lot of cultural critique and a lot yeah. of a lot of ideas. Um, but especially I think once the pandemic hit, I really empathized a lot with my overwhelmed reader because uh-huh. we were all feeling yeah. overwhelmed and stuck and stuck in our limits. And, and so you so, wrote yeah, draft I, one before the pandemic and then revised during the pandemic while your mm-hmm. kids were climbing mm-hmm. the curtains and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You got any more to say about that? Any more insights about? You know, it's kind of a blur, honestly, to know how I finished the book. I would just, um, I ended up cutting a lot of chapters that just weren't working. <laughs> just realizing, mm-hmm. okay, you know, here's my limits. Um, and and trying to make it a simpler book too. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully still as rich and deep. But I think the the limits of the pandemic also we realized like we couldn't read anything i could, i could only read like really moderately good like mystery novels right in the mm-hmm. early like or yeah. or really tender like theological meditations i couldn't read anything that was had any harshness to it you oh, know in wow. the in the beginning of the pandemic it just was too overwhelming and so in some ways i think putting more of myself and then just realizing we don't have this sort of emotional capacity or maybe even mental capacity mm-hmm. um, given the like underlying current of anxiety right now. Yeah. Okay. And so h- how did you make room for that, you know, for the work in that, in that setting? You know, I did have a few weeks where um, in the summer of 2020 where my husband just took off some work and would take the kids out of the house and I would just sit for hours and try to get, get some good work done. Um, but other than that, it was just like writing my first book when my kids were really little, I would just try to wake up early or stay up late and just get a little bit of, a little bit of something done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I have heard, uh, mothers who write books, you know, I've I've heard lots of different things about what it's like to be a mother and and write a book, um, but I have heard mothers say that the the mere fact that I can only get a short amount of time on any given day makes me really hunker down and, and be productive in in that time. Whereas when you got all day, you know, you kind yeah. of it kind of fritters away. I don't know For if that's sure. that's been your experience. And, yeah, and, again, and the pandemic situation that's a whole different right question, right. really. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, I think, you know, in this, in this book, I really wanted to be, to understand, you know, the limits of my reader. And so I think given that I was kind of under those same constraints, it helped me, yeah, make use of those small little pockets of time. And then mm-hmm. also re- and just realize, you know, my editors are forgiving for turning in the book way later <laughs> than I was contracted. And yeah. there's the acknowledgement of my limits too, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of limits, you know, one of our limits is that we live in bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we think of writing as being something that happens between your ears and then comes out through your fingers, either in a pen or on a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that you have a body and not just a, you're not just a brain on a stick. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that affect impact, whatever the right verb is the way you think about writing? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I write a lot when I go on a walk um, mm-hmm. and walks are something I feel like I'm not necessarily composing prose in my head, but, I am practicing using the same muscles um, of attention yeah. and and kind of noticing um, the world around me or what I'm reading, and that there's something you know in that bodily movement that begins mm-hmm. to then when you sit down maybe at your computer to bring things together. Um, so you're not you don't mean you're you're walking with a notebook and kind of jotting down notes. You just mean you're walking and that I'm just process. walking and paying attention and sometimes noodling things through my head, but. Most often it's just often, you know, a break from, <laughs> from the computer screen, but also um, just allowing sometimes it feels like you have all these different things you're reading maybe, and you're thinking through a chapter and it's, it's kind of like this, like all these different lights looking for your focus <laughs> and it becomes yeah. too overwhelming. And it seems like when I walk that some of those lights either dim or yeah. you realize that's not a big deal or they kind of settle down or change colors or, you know, yeah. cross paths in, I don't know. And just in the process, it feels like after I've gone for a walk, there is some clarity on the yeah. page. I love that idea of the lights dimming, you know, the, the sometimes clarity is not a matter of things brightening, but right, <laughs> the, the right. dumb ideas going away or, or the right. wrong ideas. Or the, <laughs> exactly. the whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I've never thought of it that way, but I think that's, I think that's, that's right. I mean, I, and I, I, I deprive myself of that privilege, but I just feel like I've got to listen to some kind of story while I'm actually like, what's mm. one of my re- rewards for walking or running? Yeah. Is I get a story. Yeah. And I like that too. Now the good news is that means I exercise a little, little bit more than I would, but the bad news yeah. is I missed out on that opportunity to, to really process. And mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's more sleeping is where, but mm-hmm. I, but I, I think it's, um, I think it's so much. And I never thought about it until you said it. It's so much a process. I've got this jumble of thoughts. And then when you, when you go to sleep, mm-hmm. the, the least relevant thoughts tend to sort of, mm-hmm dissipate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's like they can't survive the sleep cycle <laughs> right <laughs> or they it's might come good. back later right when you're ready for them yeah um i remember a writer saying at one point you know it's just like all of these different ideas getting in her head and to realize like you can actually just let them go and like someone mm-hmm. else can write you know about whatever yeah, oh, that yeah. topic is too it, it's not it's kind of like thinking of all of these ideas as i don't know something kind of sailing along the wind and yeah. you don't have to grab all of them yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah. 
I, I find it helpful to think in terms of, you know, ideas or a river rather than a reservoir, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when you have ideas, it's not going to be a disaster. You know, sometimes people say, I've got this idea for a book, but I don't want to, I don't, or an article, maybe mm-hmm. say an article, but you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to waste or I don't know. So, so the idea that, right. that somehow you need to hold on to your ideas until, until, cause you might not have another one. Right. Yeah. But when you, when you express an idea, more ideas, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. multiply mm-hmm. rather than, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rather than uh, depleting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you, when you're creating multiple things, whether it's books or other art forms or articles, you know, you can get really stuck in, well, this project needs to look like the other ones too. I think it's another way of like Mm. scarcity thinking too. And to realize, okay, each project can look and feel a little different. I don't have to have the same goals or tone, maybe Mm -hmm. even um, is it's really freeing creatively too. Why do you eat? associate uh, scarcity thinking with this idea that I've somehow gotten to write what I, something similar to what I've written before. Am I, am I, yeah. Yeah. Is that fair? The way I, uh, yeah, no, I I think, you know, it's this idea that we're not trusting the process. We're not trusting Uh the spirit. We're not trusting our own creativity to learn and grow. Um, Okay. Yeah. You know, instead we have to like be, a brand and always turn out the same sort of content. Um, uh, that feels scarcity thinking to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I want to follow that scarcity thread just a little bit. Um, how does accepting limits? Um, tell, tell me that this, I'm, I'm setting you up. This is a softball. I hope, uh, um, or making some, some sort of faults, either or setting limits. How's that not scarcity thinking, mm-hmm. accepting your limits? Yeah. You know, um, one writer friend of mine, Lori Ferguson Wilbert, she talked about, uh, in one of her college classes and art class that her professor only gave them two colors. They could only mm. create for the whole semester. They could only use two colors. And of course, at first you feel that restriction, right? That limit. Yeah. Um, but because you're forced right into that odd sort of, you know, assignment from that professor, mm-hmm. you actually have to work harder mm-hmm. um, and more creatively in because you only have those two colors. And she was just saying it was an act. It was such a great example of, how our creativity actually flourishes when we're, when we have limits. And so whether that's limits of time, you know, Mm. you only have a few hours to work on your writing a day, um, or if it's just limits of genre or a Mm -hmm. particular project, I think we actually will find if we choose to like stay within those guardrails that we'll be, Mm. we'll begin to explore all the possibilities that we maybe didn't see before. Yeah, that's that's so right because it, it, when it's when there's you know think about in in uh, the great divorce you know mm-hmm. where if you want a new house you just think a new house mm-hmm. and as a result when there's no when there's a, a world that's a world without friction basically mm-hmm. right and and w- without friction we just slide away right. and and so you know the because they could think the, I'm sure you remember because you can think your mm-hmm. own house. Anytime there was any kind of conflict with a neighbor, they would just think themselves a new house a little farther out. And so hell yeah. was this big donut of, you know, this with an expanding hole where everybody kept because because there right. was nothing to keep them. You could always mm-hmm. move on to the next option. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And so you don't really, uh, you know, hunker down and, and do what you mm-hmm. need to do where mm-hmm. you are. Yeah. And that's so, good for neighbors and for rating. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, I mean, even, even the fact that, you know, you used to have to buy a stamp and lick the stamp and put it on. If you want to send somebody a, a message, mm-hmm. um, at least it kept the, um, direct mail people, you know, there were some limits on their conduct, right. you know, and, and whereas it's, you know, it's more or less free to send out a right. million spam emails. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Problem. Right. Yes. And then okay. real communication is obviously deterred from that too. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you have a PhD. Um, tell me about your, um, how you get from writing like a PhD to writing for a, broader mm-hmm. readership. Well, I actually re-looked at my dissertation a year yeah. or so ago and I was like, this is not well written. Yeah. <laughs> it's not clear. There's uh-huh. a lot of academic jargon. Um, and I don't even know what I'm saying. And you know, I think it really my writing into from kind of that academic realm really happened after our fourth child was born. Uh-huh. And we had had four kids in about six and a half years, uh-huh. and I just felt like all I was doing was meeting everybody's needs and changing diapers, and I needed something for me. So I just started blogging uh-huh. um, just to get something that felt like me and that there was, yeah. you know, there was nothing that needed to come from it. Uh, and, and so that became kind of a way to build writerly community and then from there, you know, I met various editors and mm-hmm. agents and moved into, you know, writing for more public yeah. <laughs> audience. But it really kind of came out of, I need something creative. I need something that's mine. I need something that doesn't have a point to it. Um, and that just felt like play. So yeah. that was really an important kind of growing stage for me. Also, when I had, when I took creative writing as an undergrad, my creative writing professor just really commented on my critical pieces. And he's like, you know, let me know when you need a cover letter for, a, you know, a, if you wanted to be a critic kind of thing. And so I, I really took that to heart. Um, and because of that, I think kind of let the more creative part of my writing um, be shelved for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and so to begin to write, not just about writing, um, but to mm-hmm. begin to write myself found, felt like a both vulnerable and playful and important move. Yeah. Did you, um, were you consciously unlearning habits that you picked up as an academic writer? I think so. I, I still really like writing long sentences, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I do. <laughs> But I'm realizing you need some short ones yeah. <laughs> too in there. Well, nobody, uh, I mean, people don't mind a long sentence as long as your verb and your subject are pretty close together. Right. right. Yeah, they'll, they'll and that up. there's not too many long sentences in a yeah, row, right. unless you're big Henry James fans. But yeah, you know. right. Um, okay. Yeah, I remember it, it just thinking I've got to unlearn. Like, I was, when I got out of the academic mm-hmm. bracket, and, and moved on to, to other things. Yeah. I thought, I've got to unlearn some of this stuff. Right. And, you know, whether that was sentence structure and diction or um, even just, just attitudes, you know, just, right. just the, the whole point, right. Is to kind of, 
tell everyone else why they're wrong and why yeah. your reading is particularly correct. Yeah. And why I should get a promotion. I mean, yeah, right. obviously, I don't write any sentences about why I should get promoted. <laughs> right. But that's that's always the subject. I mean, that's mm -hmm. not that's not nice or fair to say. <laughs> but that's where I, you're supposed to go. I'll, that's I'll the use I statements. <laughs> OK. <laughs> In my academic writing, the subtext was always aren't I the kind of person you want to hire at your institution or right. promote at your institution or whatever. So yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm glad I'm very grateful for academics who have a heart for their audience and who, who care about, you know, I, I'm just, I'm sad that the academic, mm -hmm. that things are set up in such a way that, that our, we, we write for what we can get out of it. Um, yeah. And that was the biggest thing that I, I, I just, it felt like such freedom to say, I can love my readers hmm. and I can, I don't have to think about me and my reputation every time mm. I write a sentence. Mm. And that was, that's what I loved about. And again, I'm talking about me. I'm sure there, I, I know there, I, it's not that I'm sure I know there are academics who have a much better, much healthier approach to their work than I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for my part, I was glad to move on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I was only teaching for a few years and my husband's a pastor and so we had lots of early pastoral moves and mm -hmm. children and all of, and then, you know, economy crashing in 2008. But, and then, yeah, at that point I'd had, you know, some, some years out and just realized mm -hmm. this is maybe not the best holistic choice for, for all of us right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know if you, I, I forgot to warn you, um, but you're, you're now on the spot for the, okay. the last question is who are the writers who make you want to write? Ooh, I like that question. Um, hmm, let me think for a sec. Kathleen Norris is definitely right. one. I yeah. love the way that she is able to She's very thoughtful and really smart and articulate, and yet yeah. her writing is very approachable mm -hmm. and invitational. So I love I love Kathleen Norris's work. Um, I also you, love that. Have you read *Acedia and Me*? Mm -hmm. I love was that it, one. Did you read it for the purposes of this of of this? No, I read it, it a while ago. Yeah, it's, it's not okay. I, I could imagine there being some some mm -hmm. reasons you would use that book in your book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually book. quote it, but yeah, it's great. It's a great work. Um, and I, you know, I, am I pronouncing yeah. that word right? Do, yep, do we acedia. say acedia? Yeah. Yep, that's how I say it anyway. <laughs> so we're both wrong. <laughs> right. Maybe, but yeah. Um, I, yeah, so I love, I also love that she's able to really bridge gaps between kind of more of a mainstream audience mm -hmm. and Christian audience. So mm -hmm. I would love to. Do you have a favorite of her, of her work? Well, one thing I've always returned to is her, her just short lecture. Um, uh, the quotidian mysteries litur liturgy laundry and women's work uh -huh. um and that that's always just a fun uh short little read to return to to realize how our embodied not just housekeeping but um our or even our chores right our ways mm -hmm. to meet with god um i do love acedia and me um her dakota book too is always really good mm -hmm. i always love books on place yeah um i so love yeah, books that yeah. make me wish i was from some place that um, you know, like I've never, I've never wished I was from the Dakotas, but you read that and you go, wow, that'd be yeah. really cool to be from the Dakotas. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And just like, and to belong in one place yeah. um, is pretty powerful. Um, who else? Um, 
I think I've really enjoyed returning to Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland that yeah. just came out about two years ago. Yeah. And um, for just his theological precision, but again, that kind of warmth. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciate. Yeah, there's that. a book that says, "Hey, the theology that that we're committed to here is a theology that leads to, as you said, warmth mm-hmm. and generosity, mm-hmm. not Phariseeism." Right. Right. Um, and then just a fun, I really love Louise Penny mystery novels. And so I think, you know, reading her, it's just, it's a delight. Uh, I love her little fictional um, Three Pines in in Canada that she's created. And so I think I, you know, I've toyed around with the idea of trying to learn how to write fiction just for uh-huh. fun. So yeah. I think, you know, something like that, that's smart and thoughtful and uh-huh. fun and has a strong sense of place. Mm-hmm. Um, and is also like, yeah, I can't wait for the next book. Kind of brings me back to those early kind of childhood reading experiences. So, yeah. yeah. For a while there, I wanted to write a series of mysteries in which the protagonist was a Nashville real estate lady. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, the real estate ladies yeah. know everything. They know who's getting right. divorced. They know who's wow, going bankrupt. Fun. They've got a record deal. You know, yeah. all, the, the big things in your life that. involve real estate, you know, Right. Deals. And they are the most well-connected. Yeah. In yeah any place. So. I love that. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, well, Ashley Hales, this has been fun. Thank you. Thank um, you. I'm looking forward to seeing how, how uh, this book affects people here uh, when it releases. Uh, this you. This episode, as far as I know, is going to release the day before your book releases. So, oh, right. Good so, deal. Uh, people can, can go... Uh, find out for themselves. So thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.